Hello there, Fabricators. Aaron Crowley with the Fab Lab Podcast. So glad to be tuning in with you on episode 149, talking about silicosis. This is my interview with Mark Mario from the Natural Stone Institute. He is a longtime stone industry professional, owned a fab shop for years, and uh, the last six years has worked for the NSI. And uh, part of his work there at the Natural Stone Institute is interfacing with OSHA and the uh, rapidly changing OSHA standards that have uh, been instituted and are now um, reaching the enforcement stage. And so we chat for a good hour talking about this topic, uh, workplace safety, how to create a shop that is safe from the risk of silicosis and um, the extreme harm that it can do to those individuals. uh, And even yourself, fellow fabricator, stone shop owner, you might be at risk yourself. And so this is a, uh, a, a little sobering kind of like the last topic and most likely like the next one's going to be, uh, it's a little jarring to think about the potential risks that we are asking our employees to undertake making countertops for us. And um, in this case, it's uh, the silica issue. So ladies and gentlemen, this is a serious topic. It is absolutely worth listening to. Make sure you check out the show notes. The Natural Stone Institute has some fantastic free safety resources. Mark mentions them in the podcast, but I wanted to mention them here as well. You can go and find those links in the show notes of this podcast. So we just want to do everything we can possibly do to improve the safety of the industry at large, to improve the success of the fab companies that make this industry possible, and to continue, you know, focusing on building better businesses. So ladies and gentlemen, enjoy my interview with Mark Mario from the Natural Stone Institute. Welcome, Mark. To the Fab Lab podcast. Hey, Aaron. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it it is again, technically, isn't it? <laughs> Take two. Take two. Just so everybody knows, we tried to record this once before, but because of my terrible technical abilities, the audio quality was so bad it could not be used. So I, I think it actually may lend itself to a better outcome because a lot's happened. A lot more information's come out since then. And so yeah, I think that, things are things are evolving. Yeah, so why don't you maybe just kind of give a broad background uh, in in terms of the NSI's involvement with OSHA and just the changes that are coming to the stone industry because of the the changes at OSHA. Maybe just kind of give a little bit of a background of where that started and and bring us to where we are. Sure, today. we've been doing stuff for a while. Let me I'll, I'll do a brief introduction for those who don't know me. I'm Mark Mario. I'm one of the staff members at Natural Stone Institute. I've been in the stone industry since 2002, so 20 years plus now. Um, By schooling, I studied engineering. I didn't want to sit behind a computer and design stuff all the time, which is a pretty cool job you do now um, with the safety equipment you guys make. But um, I didn't see a long-term career in that, so I always got into sales, and I was in different construction-related industries and until a friend of mine um, brought me into the stone industry and we started a business just from scratch back in 2002. And I've been in it ever since um, fabricating countertops, selling and project managing larger projects across the country, um, but always based here in, in Atlanta where I'm from. But now with the Institute, I get to, build on some of my experiences in the industry there, um, share that with people coming into the industry and 
and I was always a member of the Natural Stone Institute. Every company I was at, we if we weren't members, we became members because I saw the value in the standards and the education that they had available through the Institute even back then. And still to this day, I think they're even more so. Um, so I think the, the, the gist or the bulk of our conversation today we wanted to chat about was, was some of the safety related stuff we're doing specifically silica related. So, yeah. Well, and the NSI is, is really the, the point organization for the industry as it relates to OSHA. Yeah, we do. I mean, there's a lot of great organizations out there that do different type of education. You've got your buddies at the Stone Fabricators Alliance or All Slab Fabbers or All Things Stone, other Facebook groups popping up or even tile specialist groups, things like that. Do a lot of education on the hands-on and some of the the how uh, of installing and fabricating stone. Um but with our membership, we cover everything from the quarriers who, who are digging the stone out of the ground. So we're talking big blocks and wire saws and massive equipment, um, processing factories all over the world. And then the people shipping and moving and finishing those those stone products, not just slabs, and using them in all kinds of applications for building cladding, not just countertops. So it's a little broader um environment that that opened my eyes to in the in the overall stone industry it's it keeps me excited seeing all the different places that stone gets used but um one of the key things we do for all aspects of the industry there is we, we try to at least create resources that can help keep everybody safe um that's one of our pillars in education is the safety education and the resources we create there and one of the big ones back in 2016 was the new um, changes to the silica, respirable crystalline silica exposure laws that that were passed. Um, they were passed back in 2016, and then they had a stair step of enforcement and, and evaluation that that over those two years through 2018 made them enforceable. Um, so there was that learning period for a couple of years back then. We tried to develop a lot of messaging back then, and it's still valid because the, the law is still the law. But um, the reality is that that stone shops are really like, you know, decoys sitting in a pond. They're sitting ducks, um, for lack of a better um, phrase. You guys are out there. Your known sources of potentially uh, ex potential exposure for workers in the workplace for for the respirable crystal and silica and so the enforcement offices around the country um you guys are easy picking easy targets for them to come write tickets um if not for a crystal and silica for other things i mean there's all kinds of safety violations that we that osha goes after um for our industry and a lot of its forklift training the biggest ones um in the safety sessions that I give from time to time throughout the years are uh, the biggest enforcement violations. The most ticketed or most cited violations are training and record keeping. Mm -hmm. So just doing that basic safety training and then keeping records, um, not just records of the training, but things like the SDS chemical exposure hazard booklets, paperwork like that, your training records, um, maintenance records all the training and paperwork that goes along with safety 
um, is one of the probably most cited things, but the the one that, that we've seen really amping up, especially over the last couple of years, um, especially the last year post COVID is now that the enforcement officers are getting back in their trucks and going out and visiting facilities and visiting shops and visiting quarries and visiting people um, wherever they see a cloud of dust, they'll pull in and see what that dust is. And oftentimes they'll test that. And um, hopefully it's not coming from your shop and it's not uh, silica containing dust or respirable, crisp, respirable crystalline silica. Yeah. Well, so, and that's what is of you know, particular interest to me in terms of just the changes that you're talking about that now, you know, OSHA in 2016 through 2018 made some pretty significant modifications. Uh, and now the enforcement is catching up to that. There is, you know, uh, sitting ducks, we're a target, whatever, you know, OSHA is aware yeah. of perhaps maybe more than your average, just industry stone fabricators in particular are more, more likely to violate or to exceed those acceptable levels of silica exposure. And so I'm just curious, going back to 2016, if you were to use that as like just a snapshot and say, using normal practices of the time with the old acceptable levels, how many companies that just as a generalization met the OSHA requirements back in 2016? Goodness, I, I wish I had solid numbers on that, Aaron. I don't. Um, I, I can tell you that the the previous exposure level of 100 micrograms per cubic meter of air sampled over an eight-hour period. That's the old standard. And that was in place since the 70s, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But that was the old standard set in place. And the crystal and silica standards came way back from mining industries when people were working in mines with air hammers and they were working in clouds of dust from sun sun up to sun down. Um, and then they noticed workers starting to die in these quarry applications where they where this was happening and it was traced back and they did lung x-rays. So back as early as the 50s and before, they they determined and, and they came up with the, the disease name silicosis. Um and so that's something it's been in place for a while. And I think the the 100 microgram level, which is the Pell or permissible exposure limit, that is the limit you were not to exceed up until 2016. In 2016, they cut that in half. Hmm. So it went from 100 micrograms of dust in a cubic meter of air. That's like a one meter cube. You know, it's pretty sizable cube of air in that collection of air volume of air over an eight hour period so over eight hours you can't have more than 50 micrograms of dust collected and i've i've seen slides that represent that small amount and if you have measuring spoons in your kitchen it would be smaller than than even say a quarter of a teaspoon probably the smallest little measuring spoon you're huh. that you might have in your kitchen it would be less than that or less than half of that so Maybe a couple pinches of salt would be something you could visualize over an eight-hour work period. That would be the amount of dust that 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 OSHA determines is permissible. Um, it doesn't mean it's healthy. It just means that's their permissible limit. The other thing in the 2016 change was they also created another level. So there's the limit at which point a company may be cited. There's also another recommended exposure level, half of that again, of 25 micrograms. They call that the action level. 
So that is really the true goal that I try to educate and share with, with stone industry members is that's the true goal for exposure is to get below that 25 micrograms during that eight hour period. There's a way we, we can do that. And we can chat about that in a little bit, but that 25 micrograms is even half that again. So it's, it's a very, very small amount of respirable silica dust that could potentially get into your lungs. Um, well, and, and the reason I I think that the 2016 sort of mile marker, if you will, is if if and I sure did, but if someone has the impression that oh I'm you know I'm there there's some standard and I'm most likely meeting it, you know, and that that standard may have required some changes, may have required you know uh, modification to practices, doing water and and things that they weren't doing previously when making dust was maybe you know more acceptable. Yeah. And, um, but it's it, it's ha it, it, what some people would have found a standard that they would have had to have made modifications to their business at the old level. Now that level has been halved, and then you're recommending having it again. So in terms of the idea that oh we're probably fine, may yeah, that, that's case. probably if if I had to give you a gut answer, I would probably say yeah that shops really weren't prepared prior to 2016, even at the old standard. It was just. Um, not as focused of a topic when when an OSHA visitor would come into a shop, they would find things like frayed electrical cables laying in water, or no GFCI, no yeah, no ground fault circuitry, electrical electrical citations, forklift citations, the training and record keeping stuff. That's always been on there, but I didn't we didn't see anywhere near the the silica related citations back then. I'm sure there were. Uh, 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 there probably were, but the big thing that brought this into light was um, because there were workers getting exposed and having um, medical issues, and um, and what happens is there there's a network of physicians around the country, lung specialists, and they share anonymous information with each other, and and so what happened was back at the end of 2018, I think it was the. The CDC released uh, MMWR, Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report, I think, on silicosis-related um, workplace injuries or deaths. Um, and what they had found was these lung specialists around the country, their database targeted and identified, I think it was eight workers. I'd have, I mean, it's, it's four years now. I'm, I'm, I wish I would have pulled up the details before our, our, but they had at least two fatalities in that, but it was Texas, Washington state, uh, Colorado, and California were the four states where these workers were identified with severe lung issues. And upon further investigation and in interviews on those individuals, the workers, they determined that all of them worked in shops that processed a large amount of engineered quartz so manufactured quartz products which that's one of the components in, in understanding working with with silica is what what's in the material that you're processing and uh, i think everybody by now if you don't know they should know that that quartz this 93 percent by weight quartz makeup they're very very high percentages of quartz in the engineered materials. Uh, quartz is virtually the same as the mineral silica or 
crystalline silica. So just by nature, those manufactured products made with that silica sand are containing that very potentially deadly uh, mineral in them. Other materials are not exempt from that. Um, I mean, natural quartzite is almost pure quartz as well. So, um, But if you're looking that, at the Ubatuba and Venetian gold of 2004, when dry grinding was a pretty standard practice, yeah. and comparing now a shop that's doing 90% quartz where the, the actual silica content is I don't know, Dub. I'd heard, I'd heard the stat twice what your average granite was. I've and I've probably repeated that perhaps incorrectly. But it, is there a spectrum that you could say that it ranges quite a bit um, on the natural stones? The granites I, I've seen as low as twenty or thirty uh, percent uh, of crystal and silica content, up to sixty percent um, in some that may contain natural quartz. It is one of the three main ingredients you know claimed or touted on quartz feldspar and what mica or some of the main minerals that are part of granite but it, but it really can vary uh depending on the material variety so yeah what we were talking about that uva tube the little quartz pockets those little milky white nuggets in there deposits for quartz those were the risk and what what percentage of that is in whatever uva tube or whatever material you were, material you were cutting at the time that kind of predetermines that the risk within that material. But uh, part of the the focus and the emphasis on the silicosis as a disease, the renewed interest or the the revived interest in that is is I think has has a bit to do with the <laughs> increase in uh, engineered materials because I mean it used to be four or five main manufacturers all breton stone licensed manufacturers around the world and now there's i couldn't tell you how many quartz factories there are around the world or even in the u.s right now well and that just takes the you know when you combine those two factors that the the permissible exposure levels have been halved yep. but the content of the silica has doubled or tripled <laughs> you know yeah I'm, I'm just curious what that, you know, uh, how does that play out in the practical sense in terms of, number one, the risk that the actual workers are at relative to, you know, a different era of the of the countertop industry. You know, it's it's not the same thing to dry grind today as it was five or 10 years ago. Not the materials that are more popular today, the engineered quartz materials, the quartzites. Yeah. Uh, are naturally uh, a high risk um, at having a higher silica content. Um, the only one I would say that I have seen in popularity now are, are, is still the natural, the white marbles are still fairly popular from what I hear from our members. And those are relatively low to, you know, untraceable amounts of, of silica or quartz in them. So um I still visit some some of our members that do some things like carving and things like that, and it's treated more as a nuisance dust. It's not okay. it's not harmful. Calcium carbonate dust is something your body can actually process, and you probably need more calcium. So it's probably probably you know, breathing uh, limestone dust is probably healthy. yeah limestone. I don't I don't don't recommend it, but it's 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 not as deadly, not as severe of a risk. So yeah, well that you know, and, and I guess my perspective is having come through that sort of transition where 
when I started in the industry, it was a very different industry. And, and this, this shift towards two things, the, the, <laughs> the renewed focus of OSHA or the new focus of OSHA, the lower standards and the product itself, if you're making dust, yeah. you're making two or three times as much silica in that same pro- even though the process hasn't changed, what you're putting into the air and what your employees are breathing has changed yep. considerably. I, I I think that's true. Yeah, the breathable silica, the potential for exposure is higher than ever, um, especially in the shops that are doing so much volume of the engineered materials these days. Yeah. And, and and it's interesting. You know, I think of somebody because I've been in a range of shops. Um, I've been in shops where the bay doors were open and the giant fan, there was a literal cloud of dust. <laughs> like shooting sideways out of the building, coming out that bay door. Um, and I've been in other shops where if they did dry grind, they had a room that was maybe tented off and had some kind of exhaust system and, or to the other, you know, into the extreme where there's no dust. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm just trying to imagine that scenario where somebody is working day in and day out to the point where they breathed enough silica to actually either wind up with a condition or dead Uh is just is shocking to me you know it just it's well, there's it's, two other i've visited a lot of shops too aaron um especially we get out on the road and seems like we visit 20 to 30 shops each each time we visit a city these days so that's yeah over 100 uh, over probably closer to 200 each year wow. um and we've been doing this since i've been here six years plus so mm-hmm. Um, visit quite a few shops just in that short amount of time here at the institute. What I've seen is the the two biggest um, misconceptions are is is well we don't if I don't see dust it's not hurting me. Um, that's one of them, um, and the other one is well I can just put uh, respirators on everybody and then everybody's safe. So I'll deal with both of those. The the first one is that visual dust that's that's really not what presents itself in doesn't doesn't cause the silicosis the the dust that is the most harmful to your body is the fines that are you can't even see with the naked eye uh, i i used that visualization earlier just to try to describe what a pile of dust would look like a quarter less than a quarter of a teaspoon um but that's just so you know the volume it's it's not a visual it's um, not enough dust to see yeah it's not it's not the dust you can see that's harmful if you see dust those can usually be caught by um the hairs in your nose and other parts uh those get caught by filtration and 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 even dust masks very readily and they they're heavy and they drop out of the air what harms your your body is the the microscopic finds the dust it's near it's invisible mm-hmm. it goes deep 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 into your lungs into the smallest little chambers of your lungs called the alveoli um and your body can't process it you can't break that your lungs can't break that material down it's a very hardy very robust material that silica um it, it i is- think i think of it like sand spurs like the when, if you've ever been to the beach, uh, at least down here in the southeast, the beaches down here, we've got these little sand spurs, which are like little spiky balls. And by God, if you walk on the beach, you get one of those in your foot, it ain't coming out. Um, that's what I equate these silica particles, these microscopic silica particles. When they go in your lungs, they're not coming out. They're locked in there. 
And the only defense your body has is to scar over those little those little sacs that actually are where the blood oxygen exchange happened for your body to to work. Um, you scar over and it you lose that capacity. So it can occur very quickly from a high exposure or it can occur very slowly over a long number of years to light exposure. But so then it is because I'm thinking of the various ways in which those, those particles are created starts with the most likely a bridge saw blade that's cutting. So is that cutting process creating all sizes of that, that, that particulate from the big stuff that drops out of the air to the little stuff that you can't see? Or yes. Is it, okay. Because I'm thinking it's the three three thousand grit wet pad that's that's making stuff the, so microscopic that you can't, you know, that you can't see. Or is it all of it? It really is. It's all of it. Um, so you think of it, even when you've seen the core pictures of quarries when they're doing blasting or things like that, you've got everything. You've got big bits of rubble, big huh. chunks of rock that fall. Yep. You've got the big bits that would be what I consider your majority of your sawing. But then you've also got the dust and the clouds and the smaller and smaller finds that are created from every one of those operations in the, in the shop. So even a, even a process like bridge saw cutting um, can create those, those microscopic finds that could potentially be breathable. And that's why it's really important to, to use water um, during that process. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that as one of the, what we call engineering controls to solve, to help solve the problem. But, on to the second thing, misconception that I hear is I'll just put dust masks on everybody or put respirators on everybody and we'll be fine. There's th that is a possibility. Um, I think this is going to be the audio podcast, so you can't see my picture, but I have facial hair. So I can't just put on a half face respirator and be safe that uh, I can't get a proper seal on my face with facial hair. I could shave my beard and wear a face, uh, half face respirator, but there's other respirators out there. There's full like scuba gear over the head, full helmets over the sh head and shoulders um, with external filters, um, purified air respirators, they call them PAPR, um, that, can, that can work for someone like me. But just doing that, you're not fulfilling the training and record keeping component as far as in OSHA's eyes. So they, if, if you use respirators or require respirator use in your company, that's your solution. It's a potential solution. And I've heard OSHA offices tell that's the best solution. I've heard them explain that as the best solution because they know it, it works and it can work, but that solution in and of itself comes with a number of other caveats that you have to also adhere to. You have to have a full OSHA compliant respirator training program in place, meaning that everybody who has to wear a respirator, which is probably going to be everybody in a shop environment, has to be properly fitted. They have to have visited a doctor. So the doctor can say this person is fit to work for an eight-hour day with a respirator restricting their airflow. They're physically fit enough to wear a respirator all day. And then you have to train that employee on proper care, use, and maintenance of the of the respirators. I mean, how many shops have you been into where you see a respirator, but it's hanging on a nail on the wall over on the side of the shop, and it's covered in a layer of dust? <laughs> that that doesn't qualify. So, yeah, and and that's the 
the practical challenge of trying to enforce that. It's just like hearing, you know, hearing protection and glasses. I mean, the reality is trying to get employees to be consistent in that is, is like pulling teeth and it's something you're fighting all the time. It uh, is. And, and you get probably marginal safety, you know, benefit out of that. It's occasional, it's sporadic, and, and maybe you have to. And, and that's why I say misconception. It, it is it yeah. is a method that can work. Um, and like I said, I've talked with OSHA offices that they want that to be the primary method because they know it works. Mm-hmm. But the acceptance and follow through on the employee side is is so much more challenging as a former employer and dealing and hearing from other employers nowadays. I know how challenging that is. So um, from from our standpoint, more of the research and, and the information I've gathered from members, um, and this is just completely voluntary. I've had members share their reports. So, um, did you have something else to go into real quick? Yeah, well, I just wanted to kind of follow up on something you said that even in a in a I can't remember exactly how you said it in a in a wet shop, a respirator is still the best idea. So I even right now as we're talking, two things are going on. There's this sense of alarm. <laughs> that, that okay. is is I'm just like perhaps my shop that all those folks worked in for so many years wasn't nearly as safe as I thought it was. Just yeah. because we were a wet shop. We I mean we had a absolute unequivocal no no dust policy, zero tolerance. Um and and a lot of people came to work for a lot of years in that environment. You know, but but at the time I thought I was you know doing everything that could be done and it was best practices. And so now I'm, th- I'm looking back going, Oh, well, it's a little late to fix that now. Yeah. And, and so it, it, what I, the distinction I want to make is, is that respirator recommended in a shop that's dry grinding or is that respirator recommended no matter what you're doing, even if you've got a completely dust-free environment because of that particulate reality that some of the stuff is so small, you can't see it. And so you from the, the naked eye, you're like, there's no dust in my shop. And it's like, no, you still need to be wearing a respirator because there's stuff in the air. And and is there a distinction between those two? Well, now I'm going to give everybody the keys to the car. Um, <laughs> but the keys of the car, you have to get a driver's license for first. So some of this, it may not be easy. Some of this, you may have to do a little study and do a little work to, to implement them in your shop. But um, so the 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 at the institute i i've told you i've talked with osha offices i've sat in one that just received a large federal grant for training and their training was respirator use respirator use respirator use um our training because of my background and our knowledge and and working with so many members and company owners and employees around the industry we know that's a difficult reality it's not impossible it's just difficult um so I've gathered information and reports from a number of our member companies that have willingly shared it with me. And the we, we think an easier path to compliance, both OSHA compliance and safety for your employees, because um, they kind of go hand in hand. You want to be compliant and do what the government tells you, but um, or not break the law, rather. Um, but you really, really, the, the real end game is to keep the workers safe. Um, and we think there's a real way to do that with what's called engineering controls and um, housekeeping methods. So engineering controls would be things like using water on the saw or a little dust collection hood used right at the point where dust may, might be created. Um, 
or the and then the housekeeping methods or housekeeping controls would be things like washing down the shop multiple times a day and so so what we try and share with people first and foremost is all wet shops no dry grinding no dry cutting at all and originally there was a lot of pushback that people said well i can't do this or can't do that dry i can't do this the reality is i know shops that do that in very high volumes everything you used to do dry you can do wet um it may not be as easy or as fast to do it wet because you may have to do whatever process you're doing cutting grinding whatever dry the piece to check and see how it looks and then go back to your wet process again to to finish it up i i realize that there is that small challenge but workers get used to that just like they get used to working with a respirator on their face it's not it's not necessarily comfortable it's not necessarily easy but it's healthier in the long run and that's part of getting that to work is just getting the employee buy-in and those habits so the number one is working all wet but that's not that doesn't solve the problem by itself mm. actually but, i should probably back up is number one should be having your shop tested mm. because you asked me what did we do back in the the 90s or the 2000s what did we do back in the early 2000s where we were all cutting uba tuba we don't know i don't know i don't know i wouldn't have known then unless i had testing done um so that's really the first step as we try and encourage shops now is to have that have your shop tested and there's there are offices in all states around the u.s um and other parts of the world too that can do that testing um in the u.s under the osha umbrella they've got two sides they have the enforcement side which is the ones who write the citations and people don't necessarily like it when they show up or come knocking at the door but on the other side, under that government funding umbrella, is a consultative division. Those are usually ex-enforcement officers who may be a little further along in age who are just more focused on education. They want to keep the workers safe, but they also want to educate the employers on the proper ways to do that or the easier ways to do that. So in every state, there's an office. It may be direct OSHA office. It's um, usually through your state department of labor division. Um, in some states, like where I live, it's through a technical college or an engineering school or someone who may have an industrial health major in that school. Um, here in Georgia, it's through Georgia Tech. Yeah, and in, in 2000, I think it was 2016 when the changes, I think, were first, you know, starting to be, I don't know, uh, kind of rolled out, or at least they were letting people know there might be a change coming down the pike. We reached out to our local OSHA and just said, hey, exactly that. You know, we we thought we were within, you know, and they came right out, had put monitors on all the employees in the shop, didn't cost us anything. And, um, but that was before these, I, I don't think we, in fact, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have met the new standards. Um, but And that's, that's fine. Even if it, even if you don't meet the standards or you do have some risk to the employees, inviting the consultation office out is at zero risk to you as the employer. The only requirement when you use that free consultation through your through OSHA or through the Department of Labor, again, I'm talking consultation, not the enforcement. When you invite them in willingly, the only rule that you agree to is that you will correct any serious risks that are found during that review and they'll do everything they'll it's not just uh air monitoring testing they can come in and do hearing 
uh, or noise level testing. They can come in and do a full shop walkthrough, or they can just sit and do a review of your training and paperwork. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's a fully comprehensive consultation. Yeah, and this isn't just available to stone shops. This is for all kinds of manufacturers and industries. They want to keep all workers alive. And silica is not just for stone shops. Silica is also in concrete industry and glass industry um, and any, any of those products that contain levels of silica. So, yeah. And it was, um, it was very non-combative. It was, yep. you know, my recollection and it's very vague. We had a general manager at the time that, that kind of oversaw that, but it, it was, they were very happy to come help us, you know, to do that. And, um, one of the other things you were talking about the, the move from dry, um, now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming, and I, I, I love data. I love measuring things because usually the, the data shows that I, my, my gut feeling is about, a, you know, three miles off of reality. And I just like that process of like, what, what is this? What are the stats? You know, how many shops are dry grinding? How many are, you know, but we were a dry shop back in the early two thousands and we moved into a new space. Okay. And the landlord let us move in, didn't look at our old shop, but in the process of us moving in, I don't know, because we were just down the street. I think he went and looked at our old shop and he came back. And us to this day, I'll never forget this. He owned a uh, automotive. He owned this big building, but his, he was a, a automotive guy. And he walked in. He's like, you turn this shop into the what you did in that last shop. I, you're out of here. I mean, I don't care what the lease says. You're out of here. <laughs> and we just like spent all this money to move in. And I'm like, he basically was telling me, you better, better. figure out how to not make dust immediately or I'm kicking you out of the space. You better clean it up. Yeah. And. And the gnashing of teeth, the, the crew was just because we did everything by hand at that point. Yeah. We might have been still cutting with a rail saw at that point. So, That's I mean, it was, everything was done by hand. And the, it was like, we can't. And within a couple of days, we were a completely dust-free shop. We modified all the tools with water feeds. And we were able to do everything we had been telling ourselves we couldn't do. Yeah. We were able to do. And, you know, and it was a better environment. Um, so it is actually, it isn't as hard as one might think to make that at least first step. And obviously that's not far enough with these new levels or these new, you know, acceptable. Yeah, unfortunately it really isn't. Um, and that's, and that's why I backed up. I said, your step one should be getting tested because what they'll do in reality is, um, if you're a shop of any size, more than, you know, just a couple guys, they'll come in and they'll put multiple monitors on multiple employees around the shop. So what their goal is to try and figure out if one activity or one zone or area of the shop produces, you know, higher exposure levels than another zone or another activity. Yep. So they'll identify that different workers doing different things. So you may have a guy at a bridge saw or at a CNC, they'll put one on that. They may put a monitor on your forklift driver, your material handler. They may put uh, a monitor or will likely put monitors on the finishers or polishers. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll help you determine where the risks are at different areas within your shop. The advantage there is you may already be in compliance mm -hmm. in one area or another. Yep. And so then you can focus all your resources, all your energy into correcting you know, where the risk exists. You don't have to pull your hair out going, well, I've got to put a tent over my entire shop and, right. you know, filter everything in the world. No, you really have to know what's where the risks are and then you can focus those activities. But then I would move on to, yes, obviously wet cutting is one. The biggest um, advances beyond that 
that we've heard from members are are then you know obviously we want everything cut wet so everywhere there's a blade or a polishing pad or something contacting the stone there should be water interacting what that does is it holds on to those microscopic fines traps them in the water and keeps them out of the the air the breathable air for the most part and i know that's not 100 percent true because things like bridge saws where they have very high velocities coming off the tips of those blades you'll see some clouds of moisture and the the dust in that moisture yeah. may technically be breathable so i was talking to simon bradbury <laughs> here a week or two ago and he was he showed me a video actually of being in a shop with a very very sophisticated top of the line piece of cutting equipment cutting wet yep but it, i think it was in arizona and so it was somewhere real warm by the time that spray was 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 coming up over this wall and settling down the water was evaporating and dust was actually collecting on a settling out next to it and uh so yeah that that i was like wow i it, that creates a really unique challenge <laughs> and so there i would i would hope just by having testing done that would that would isolate the the needs for additional improvement to that area and not be not have to be focused over the entire shop but even in wet operations that's why i said wet's not it's it's a step it's not the only step the next ones i would say uh that we've seen or i've heard from our, our companies because i have folks that have added these one by one and, and had the consult consultants come in and measure it each time so wet cutting in one um as far as engineering controls or corrective actions the second one would be housekeeping efforts and i mentioned washdowns and what I mean by that is is having workers come in um, before the start of a shift, before and after every break, or lunch break, whatever, and then before they leave for the day is taking that wet hose and just washing down their work areas. Um, the thing that helps avoid is it it eliminates some of those those puddles that get left on the floor that. The slurry that that, like you said, the the moisture traps the dust, but then when that settles on the floor and the, the slurry puddles and all that, and those are left either overnight or whatever to dry out, and then someone walks or drives through those those dried slurry, then it has the opportunity to get re re entrained back into the breathable air. So that's why the se the second step is to is to do those daily washdowns or multiple washdowns. It can be continuous um, during the day. Just keep washing those those areas down. Get that stuff into a pit, into a collection area, into a filter where it can you can take that out of the environment. Um, and then the next one that I've heard that that helps, and this is kind of twofold here, is running one of those little zamboni type walk behind or drive sit on top uh, floor scrubbers. Same thing, getting that slurry off the floor and collected and and out of the work environment. Um, those can help in bigger shops. People can drive those around or walk behind them like a little vacuum and just suck all that stuff up, clean the floors constantly. It just creates an overall cleaner workplace. And then the last one, if those efforts don't work and you're still having slightly elevated um, exposures in the air, the other thing that that I, I've shared over and over with people that it's effective is is putting in HEPA filtration circulators. And all of our big buddies, Grand Courts and tooling suppliers and BB Industries and 
Grand Quartz and Defusco, all those guys, they carry this equipment nowadays. It's it's basically fans, circulating fans with a big HEPA filter on the inlet side. So it's continuously filtering the air in your shop. And I've visited one shop that had as many as, I think, a dozen of them. They had them all on every support pedestal down the center of the shop, just constantly filtering the air. And they, they had testing done before and after, and they said those did make a difference. So. Okay. That's got to be some filter to uh, to when you're talking about the the micron level that you were describing. Well, that's yeah, that's what that's what HEPA is. It's okay. point I don't know zero 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 nine or huh. um, and and what that company did they had where they had that many in use all the time. Those, those HEPA filters, the filters themselves, can become an expensive maintenance item. So what they did in addition to that, they had a very inexpensive. Um, um, pre-filter, they called it, just a washable pre-filter they put in front of the HEPA filter. It would catch a lot of the the big particulates, the stuff we can see that we talked about that isn't really life-threatening, but that that throwaway or washable filter, the cheap filter would catch all that information, that bad stuff, um, and they could rinse that out or wash those. And then it extended the life of the the HEPA, the the one doing the the catching all the real finds, it would extend the life of those quite a bit and made that made the overall cost go way down. You know, you mentioned the Zamboni. I always took great pride. I thought we ran a pretty clean, pretty meticulous shop. And then the gentleman who bought the company, <laughs> he bought one of those Zambonis and he took clean to a whole new level. I mean, like uh, unbelievable. So I, I've actually seen it with my own eyes that it actually... It works. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. I can walk into shops nowadays. I can tell where they've made a habit of cleanliness because I see shops like that where, where it's just part of their regular routine. They, and, and that, I don't want to say you can eat off the floor because I don't know if I've ever been to a shop where I literally would want to do that, but I, I've seen some very clean shops and I've been to some that are really uh, need some help. Yeah. And you know, and when you safety aside, just the morale difference in it working in an environment that is clean and tidy and it just it's there's just no no comparison whatsoever so i'm yeah, curious I mean, okay oh, yeah we've we've seen pictures of like uh, manufacturing factories of other products and things like that and you can envision a, a dirty dusty grimy welding smoke or oil filled factory versus you know you see pictures of a bmw plant and and it's all <laughs> beautifully clean with robots doing all the heavy lifting and yeah very automated uh, but yeah it creates it you're right it creates a different environment so you you'd mentioned the um something that that kind of sparked the thought you were talking about the the doctors the the lung specialists and it, and it reminded me of a topic i want to make sure we get to the I remember being on a call with the, the safety committee and this was talked about and one of the fabricators there, and I don't know if there was a lawsuit, but this particular fabricator discovered, unfortunately, after the fact that their liability policy actually, of, of all the things on the face of the earth that you could exclude from a business liability policy, it excluded silica-related issues. Can you give the particulars on that and, and yeah kind of i'll, I'll couple couple more things on this yes uh i i've talked to a couple of our insurance agents and carriers around the industry and it, it's very 
it would be fairly common that silica related health issues are excluded on workman's comp policies nowadays mm-hmm. just because it's so so common and it's so untraceable that the insurance carriers won't cover it because so that means if if you happen to be employing one of those employees who has a let's just say it's it's not a lawsuit let's just say it's a workers comp claim that is yeah. related they go hey i'm having health problems okay well let's tap into workers comp and your workers comp policy which when i heard that we yeah went, you would you would think that would cover you our, of all the things you would think it would cover it would cover the thing most likely to happen in your business and yet when we went back and looked it was like nope that exclusion existed and it's like Hey, um, <laughs> broker that brokers my insurance yeah. for you know 15 years now. I'm in the granite countertop industry. You think this would have come up at some point? Right. It hadn't. And we we did we had that exclusion and we had to add that policy. As I recall, it wasn't that much. But the point is the exposure, the the potential, you know, risk that number one, like you said, the employees are at. If it got to the point where the employee had to file a claim for silica related health problems and they come look you know if, if your policy doesn't cover it your business is quite yeah. a bit. and i'm not going to say they're not available everywhere talk to your agent talk to your 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 broker your carrier um it may be an additional policy if it is available um you may just have to cover it with something like additional umbrella coverage cover all risks beyond you know what's excluded um, but it's a good topic to have with your with your agent. I mean, obviously they're getting they're getting theirs from all those uh, payments you send in <laughs> month after month. That was one of my least favorite checks to write. Yep. Um, but yeah, talk to them. Just have that open conversation. Um, it's unlikely that it's covered in your base workman's comp, but there may be additional coverages available. So reach out to them and ask. So I'm just going to reiterate that one more time. Fabricator, your insurance policy, your workers' comp policy, more likely than not, does not cover silica-related claims, which means your business is exposed that you would be covering that potentially, whether the business itself or you personally as the owner. It's it's shocking. It's, it's worth looking into. It's worth having that conversation sooner than later. Yep. Uh, and now kind of getting into the technical compliance of of the the silica safety osha requirements is between that pell and the 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 excuse me the action level that 25 level i mentioned and the 50 which is the exposure limit in there there are some additional requirements if you can't get below that 25 if you're you're still legal if you're below 50 but above 25 but if you're above that 25, there are additional precautions you have to take. And, and one of those involves, I mentioned medical testing for respirator fit. You have to have medical testing done for the employee just to have, have things like lung spirometry, which is air volume tests or x-rays done um, by a licensed practitioner so they can determine if, if that employee is able to to work doing that activity or if you haven't contributed to to a lung disease or a lung problem um and the other along that line another tip we've we've shared with members is it's not a requirement if you're able to get below that action level great you're considered safe and all that medical requirement medical testing is not a requirement 
Um, respirator use is not a requirement. You don't even have to have them in your building. You can have them on a voluntary basis if you choose and tell your employees, you know, we've tested below action level. If you feel safer wearing a respirator, it's voluntary on you. You can wear one. We don't require it. And therefore, we don't have to have all the training requirements that go along with that being a required safety method. I had a train of thought. So in in that, so between the action level, there's the medical requirement, medical testing requirement. So the other thing that we share or we say is a good idea, not a requirement, but it's a good idea, is upon hiring a new employee. A good idea is to have that medical baseline testing done at, upon hire of a new employee. Reason being, especially if they worked at Aaron's shop cutting Uba Tuba 20 years ago, and I don't know if, what safety protocols he used back then. He told me he did a little dry cutting, but I don't know if that was a lot or a little or how much exposure that or what that worker was doing in there. You don't know. Um, and so that medical baseline testing, uh, yes, it's an expense, but I think it's a it's a good idea because it gives you a snapshot of where that employee's health is when they begin working at your company. Because as soon as they walk in the door day one and they're on your payroll, you assume all the medical risks moving forward from there yep. as an employer. So that's why we recommend that. Is a, It's a good idea. It's not a requirement, but it's a good idea. Well, and, and when you consider the increased awareness that the industry, you know, where the likelihood of that coming back to bite you maybe have been less, you know, just less likely a yeah. few years ago, 10 years ago, it's, it's now it's more likely and it's becoming increasingly, increasingly more likely because of the OSHA's awareness of what's going on, the lower levels and yeah, so it's not just the lower levels. There's cases in Australia. There's cases in Israel and 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 Spain and other parts of the world where where they're effectively outlawing dry cutting, <laughs> just as a law. You can't cut these materials dry. It's it's illegal to even do that. So they can shut your business down if ca you're caught cutting dry. Wow. Um, I was just taking an eighth off the backsplash. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I guess the other thing where the, the the lawsuits that I've heard about, I think I've heard of three six-figure OSHA fine, like not lawsuits, fines Citations. from OSHA that, that yeah. were in a couple cases, multiple six figures for not dealing with this silica issue. I think all three of them were large companies. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, 10 years ago, unheard of. Um, and it's becoming more common. And I think you were mentioning too earlier before we, we started recording the, the consumer level. Now the, the, the consumer is now aware of the silicosis issue on some level where there have been cases where people have claimed, Hey, you guys, you guys put us at risk because you cut something in my house and now yep. my house is contaminated. So these cases around the world, um, we mentioned a case or two, and not just OSHA citation, the legal cases opening up now. Um, I think we were also chatting about there was there was at least one case. <laughs> it wasn't a class action, but um, a company had a silicosis issue arise, and they claimed that all of the manufacturers and suppliers didn't do their due diligence in in educating them that silica was a 
component or a risk in the products that they were sold. Um, and the lawyers got involved and they just went down, you know, went into your accounting software and picked out every vendor you possibly had for the last 20 years and <laughs> sued them all. Um, so about a few of those right away were discounted or, or disqualified in that they hadn't recently supplied any materials to that company. So a lot of them were, were dropped right away. But then there were a few that were still focused on on that act activity but the reality is that even even a, a high silica containing product like engineered quartz is by itself sitting isn't a risk mm -hmm. it's when it's cut dry or when it's cut and there's not adequate controls to keep that out of the air um, that it becomes a risk so um, I think that case got dropped, but each one of these cases, like you said that, and I've heard of some consumer cases, like you, exactly what you said, where a cooktop or a cutting operation was performed on the property or on site, created some dust, either that person knew of or got on the internet and learned quickly about risks of, of, of silica dust. And now you have to buy me a new house and, and everything else. Cause I'm not living in there with that silica, that dangerous, dangerous silica. Yeah, it's like it's like radon 2006. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Well, and it just it just illustrates the point that the awareness of this issue goes beyond what used to be a really small little, you know, tight knit community where yeah. very few people outside of the industry knew the risks. Um, it's that's not the case anymore. Um, consumers so, are aware so of it. So getting into that, because you mentioned the just trimming off an eighth off a of backsplash. Um that's a, a likely reality for many shops. Uh, so they're, they're back going back to the OSHA compliance, there's two uh, standards. There's one that I've been focusing on during most of our conversation here today that, that they call the general industry or it's the manufacturing standard for general industry, which covers the shops. Mm -hmm. So fabrication in that fixed shop environment that's unlikely, it's repetitive does the same thing day in day out unlikely to change then there is another standard called the construction standard so that covers all your guys in your install trucks all the guys out on job sites on the high rises in the homes um, there are some different compliance rules for those employees versus the ones in the shop and all those ones in the shop we talk about wet cutting having it measured the filters, the floor scrubbers, all those good ideas, the washdowns, those are easier to control in a, in a repetitive shop environment. Out on the job site, OSHA, when they put together the standards, they divide it because they understand the job site conditions change, mm -hmm. like the weather. I mean, every job site changes. Sometimes it is weather related. Mm -hmm. But the the compliance on job sites is, to, is not to eliminate trimming a quarter eighth of an inch on a piece of splash it's what methods can you utilize to keep those workers safe if they have to trim it eight off the end of a piece of splash so what those require are uh hepa filtered vacuums or capture devices mm. every grinder drill tool you have either is water fed water supplied to knock the dust down or has a shroud or a collection hood that go feeds into that HEPA vacuum so it captures the dust and keeps it out of the breathable air. Um, 
beyond that, there are other compliance methods, but they have what's called a table one, and it outlines all those activities that can be taking place. And this applies to all the workers on job sites, not just stone guys. It's guys drilling through concrete. It's, so it's coring and cutting guys drilling concrete. It's the electrician drilling a hole to run a piece of conduit. It's mm -hmm. everybody that might create that silica dust on a job site that has to comply with this. So it's just fabricators are going to, you take all those trades combined in their, in, in their occasion, yeah. you know, the, the stone cutter is going to be making that kind of dust on a regular basis. We are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We are. Our industry is as a whole, but I mean, if, if your guys are on a job site, theoretically, uh, another trade could be putting your workers at risk if they're not doing the proper um safety precautions they could cre be creating a dust hazard or be creating a silica hazard if they're cutting without those protocols in place so they're not that's why i just say that to say it's not just for stone guys it's for everyone on these job sites but it's it's just a different outline a different set of of requirements but it's mainly those two mainly is using the hepa capture devices if they're not using water and water in residential application counter type applications is highly unlikely it's possible i've seen some just drilling a core hole where you might be able to get away with one hole and a little bit of water but usually it's going to be a hepa vacuum with a dust collection shroud on the tool got it yeah i think the days of cutting cooktops in place <laughs> nope probably going away i think there are still companies that do that but yeah this hopefully this will make them think twice yeah. listening to this podcast and, and just come up with some different ideas or yeah. I, I know a lot of shops and you, you do too, that most of them do a lot of that pre-cutting work either in the shop um, or they could finish it, you know, with a, with a vacuum outside the home and carry a very fragile piece in with, with the right equipment. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's really the, the, the a, gr a great summary of the conversation. Things are changing and the industry and the individual fabric fabricators, we, we have to be willing to change the way we're doing things. Number one, to keep our employees safe. And number two, to meet the changing requirements and the, the standards that are, um, I mean, they're getting tighter here, but you're saying in other countries, they're, they're outlying it. I mean, it's, I mean, that level yeah. of regulation and, and enforcement is, you know, a whole nother level. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard, I've heard whisperings of the possibility of outlawing, you know, engineered quartz as a building material, even, um, I mean, similar to asbestos here in the States is outlawed for, as an insulation, you know, you know, it's not, it used to be, it used to be at all that insulation. That's why it's such a, abatement is such a big business now is all these old buildings that have asbestos insulation um, now have to be disassembled very carefully and very controlled. Um, but that's just one, I think that's maybe not extreme, but maybe it is an extreme uh, way to keep workers safe is just to ban the material entirely. I hope that's not the case. I hope we can Wow. do things as an industry and as employers and employees to to keep ourselves safe working with this stuff because as i mentioned it in its stationary form as a part of the stone or a part of the quartz or a part of the whatever it's not really a risk it's not it's not like a homeowner or someone could accidentally scratch a right you know, scratch a little bit of silica and it's going to cause you know life-threatening damage 
even yeah. even a grinder blade on a small area on a single event's not likely to cause a life-threatening hazard but it's it's the workers who are working around it or with it day in day out that are that are at, at real risk and that's who we want to take care of yeah and i i, I try and be as transparent on this podcast and i'm going to say something that some people are going to find probably mildly offensive, but I want to put this in perspective, this conversation that we're talking about when, when we're discussing the acceptable level of risk, we would ask somebody to assume for what, you know, okay, if, if I'm going to put my life at risk to save somebody's life, okay, yeah, I've got a certain amount of tolerance to save that. That risk is worth taking. But there are other things that are not worth risking my life over. They're, 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 they're too. So when you think about, and this is not to diminish the product or the trade. I mean, I've been in this for almost 30 years. I was a born stone cutter. I just, it's in my blood. But when you, I want to say this though, in as stark and as blunt of terms as possible to put this into context in terms of what we're asking people to do in terms of the employee out there on the shop floor, the guy out in the field, um, a quartz countertop, that a homeowner purchases and has installed. If you look at the data, most homeowners live in their house five to seven years, which means that countertop will literally be long forgotten by the person who purchased it in five to seven years. Never thought of again. It's just a surface on a cabinet in somebody's house. And so the the, the reality of what we're asking people to do for the, the, the outcome, I mean, it's a nice product. It's a great industry. But is it worth putting somebody's physical health or life at risk over simply to put another countertop on somebody's cabinet? And I, I don't think it is. So it requires of us to do what is necessary to keep those people safe in the process of making that product because the product itself is just a, it's, it's just a surface on somebody's cabinet. Um, it is. It is just a, a prettier, more durable than some other product that could be yeah. a cabinet surface. Um, that's probably heresy in the industry. The podcast will probably be over now that I've said that, but no, I I think, I think we just have to accept (laughs) it for what it is and, and to recognize what level of risk is appropriate for what it is that we're doing. Um, and and I don't, Aaron, we could spend another hour talking about slab handling risks because that's another big pet peeve of mine. It's it's unfortunate. I heard of another one just I think it was last week, um, uh, another fatality occurred in our industry because of a slab handling incident. Um, so that's another ongoing one is it's it's an inherent risk to our industry. These things are big, they're heavy, they're dangerous. Um, and the slightest bit of complacency or uh, or it could be ignorance, not knowing um, can can result in someone losing their life. It, and it may be uh, it may be over a number of years with silica related um unhealthy activities or it could be instantly with a slab fatality um mm. and that I, I wish i could avoid all of them um and along those lines i do want to mention oh, we, we didn't cover this real quick but there is what osha calls a national emphasis program that's currently um active it became active before the whole pandemic and then with the pandemic, nobody was doing anything, including OSHA. They were only going out on on severe complaints or accident calls. Um, so they weren't out doing their regular rounds and visits on the enforcement side like like they normally would. There, every office I've talked to is back in full full mm. activity mode now, and that emphasis program is in 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 that in uh, 
underway. So mm-hmm. it's not uh, an issue of how well can we hide or avoid, you know, OSHA finding us. They are looking at specific industries like stone fabrication and stone cutting and tile and glass and concrete related industries. They're going to come knocking on your door. They will visit your shop. Um, It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And so that's why I hope the information we've given you in this little session here, and you're always welcome to reach out to me at the National Stone Interest, Natural Stone Institute, Mm -hmm. um, or Aaron can get you a hold of me as well. Um, we want to, we want to help you and your employees work safer and give you these resources, give you these tools. A lot of those are available on our safety page, uh, or we have a specialized silica safety page. So both of those are at naturalstoneinstitute.org. You can go forward slash safety or forward slash silica and get more focused silica safety content. Um, and then we have a lot of online education in our Natural Stone University courses and things like that, where you, where I talk about in-depth topics like this specifically, and you can use those as training for your employees. Yeah, and just that that's a great reminder. I think what we'll do is put the links to those in the show notes, just so it makes it easy for people to find those. Love but, it. But those, those safety resources are free uh, and available Absolutely. to anybody in the industry. So by all means, fellow fabricator, um, they exist. They're readily available. <laughs> and uh, Member or not. Yeah. We want you to have the safety and keep, keep your company and your employees safe. So that's why we put them out there for everybody. Well, this was as unsettling a conversation as I knew it was going to be even having it a second time, <laughs> but I think it's a really important one to have. So this was, is there anything else? Mark, before we, I think that's it. I was just afraid we didn't cover that emphasis program, and I didn't. I didn't want people to think you can just continue to close your curtains and hide, 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 and ocean will drive past. They're they're going to come knocking. Like I said, if you show up on a mm. on a tax basis or a or a, a NAICS code as as a stone cutter or fabricating company, you're on their target list. They will come knocking um, in your shop. That's why we put so much emphasis on that shop safety, the testing, the housekeeping, all those resources, all those steps that I mentioned. We put a lot of that focus on the shops because you guys really are are the sitting ducks. You are the targets um, that they can locate under that national emphasis program. Um, yeah, and if you got a cloud of dust shooting out of the bay door, it's a telltale sign. Holy moly! Yeah, that's even oh. even more of a telltale. Yes. Yeah. And having that invitation, just to reemphasize, when you invite them in on the front end, it, it, it completely changes the entire nature of your relationship with OSHA. If they come in and find you doing something, um, it's a different, it's going to, it's going to it's look, look very differently than it does if you invite them in to, to evaluate your shop. That's a great point to close on or for me to wrap up with anyway. Um, I, I push that so heavily. There's other avenues for inspection and testing. You can go to private hygienists and pay them money to have all this done. But working with a consultation office, as I mentioned, it's free, first of all. It's free to everyone in the U.S. Uh, through your state, your Department of Labor, whatever. It's free. Again, your only obligation is to correct those unsafe conditions that they they identify. The best thing probably the even better thing on that aaron kind of reminded me of this when you were saying that because of that emphasis program the enforcement guys are coming out you might as well be working with the consultation folks 
because they're two different offices. But if you're actively working with consultation, um, and that can be even waiting for that first consultation, just being on their list, waiting for them to show up, you're considered actively working with consultation. While you're actively working with consultation, you're exempt from enforcement risks, from random enforcement fines. Wow. If there is a accident or fatality or uh, or a complaint, they may be obliged to come out. But just random stop-bys or the National Emphasis Program, them just randomly coming by, if you're already working with that compliance division or the consultation division, excuse me, then you're exempt from those those random enforcement visits. Mm. What they'll do is they'll stop and you say, whoa, I'm working with <laughs> you know, Louie over at consultation, we're, we're waiting for them to come out or we're waiting for their report or they've given us six to eight weeks to correct this and this. They may call and verify that, but then the enforcement officer will turn around and leave very wow. quickly. I've heard of exact stories of just like that, where <laughs> they've showed up. Sorry, I've got, here's my letter. Here's my report. Here's my reply. I'm waiting for them to show up or I'm working with them. They'll leave and they'll go to the next company down the block. Wow. Well, yeah, and then you can tell them, "Hey, my buddy down the street." Yeah, <laughs> with that cloud. Sorry, breakfast. sorry, you drove all the way out here. <laughs> this guy may not be working with consultation. In fact, I lost, I lost a job to him just the other day because he underbid <laughs> me. I think you ought to go see him. <laughs> oh, well, they're going to they're they're come out one way or another. So yeah. Well, this th thank you for taking the time to to just share this information and everything you guys at the Natural Stone Institute are doing to stay in communication with OSHA and then to turn around and translate it into fabricator language so that the, the rest of the industry can, can adapt and can evolve and hopefully make a safer environment for um, our employees. So thank you very much for coming on the Fab Lab podcast. I appreciate it, Aaron. I appreciate what you do with your safety devices and tools to help the industry as well. I think we're all towards a common goal there, but uh, I appreciate the time with you today and the time we spent earlier as well. Fantastic. <laughs> sorry, oh. sorry, we didn't get that recorded. I'm glad we got to got to do it again, though. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do it again. You mentioned, <laughs> you know, you mentioned flat handling. It's another huge, huge, it is huge topic. So let's uh, maybe even plan on it. Okay, let's do it. Hey, Mark, thank you so much. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye bye. Wow. I mentioned that that was going to be a sobering conversation, and it was uh, a little unsettling. I um, 28 years in a stone shop environment, 23 of those years, folks working for me, and to imagine, to think, to contemplate that uh, that work environment may not have been as safe as it could have um, only increases my resolve to uh, to do what I can do now to make the industry safer. And so, uh, fellow fabricator, I hope you um, learned something. I hope that you've been inspired. I hope that you have uh, uh, resolved to work harder in your shop to make it a safer environment for yourself and for your employees. And uh, make sure you tune in next week. We will continue talking about this topic of safety on the next episode of the Fab Lab podcast. Until then, safe fabricating. <laughs>